Welcome to A Writer in Italy, the podcast. I am your host, Michelle Johnston, and this is a little share in the world of travel, books, art, food, and lifestyle. I live in Australia, yet have long had an attraction to the Mediterranean countries for as long as I can remember. This inspiration has fueled my creative life and given me incredible joy over the years as an artist and a writer. If you are new to the podcast, season one is the bookshare in the shadow of a cypress, an Italian adventure, and then many other musings on books, art, cooking, and indeed the lure of Italy as the ultimate muse. You can find all show notes at michellejohnston.life and follow me on Instagram at a writer in Italy and at the yellow house underscore. Thank you for joining me. I love having you here for the journey of Muse Italia. Welcome to episode 38 and another excerpt of the travelogue series from Padova in Italy to Paris, France. And so this particular chapter weaves a day from Antibes in the south of France on the Riviera and over toward Saint-Port-de-Vence and over to Bonneau in the Luberon. And I just wanted to add that all of the show notes for any of the books I have mentioned are at michellejohnston.life on my website. And if you would like to see some of the images that I took on the travel journey, there's some photographs as well and just little snippets from the podcast. So you can find all of that at michellejohnston.life. So onwards for another adventure in France today and um, I'll see you next time with the next installment. So here we go. At 11.03 the family stowed the luggage, all five bags, into the back of the SUV. The brie, the fromage that had smelt like a rotten ferment, had to be stored in four plastic bags so that the smell wouldn't reach the clothing. In the boot, bags, baskets and baguettes for lunch. We sit in the car relieved to have orchestrated the whole drama of packing up and starting again. We farewell on Tib, the pale yellow walls, the blue shutters, the shimmering light of the Côte d'Azur. We organise our hilarious Australian narrator. No, I think I prefer the British one. It is way too ridiculous. We are on to Saint-Paul-de-Vence, and then a rural farmhouse, La Petite Maison, next. So why all the way over to the Luberon, you may wonder, and into the hilly medieval villages of the Vaucluse, when we could just stay on the Riviera? Well, I guess it was the film The Good Year. I am not going to lie, the vision of the French chateau and vineyards, and rural bliss has lingered all of these years, that romantic French landscape of farmhouse, fruit trees, cypress, and aching blue skies. I have been faithfully attracted to those old stone buildings, stone walls, mountainous expanse, and gardens lined with symmetry and cypress. 
a row of lavender certainly doesn't fail to elicit some kind of response from within. Go, yes, why not? The film The Good Year turned out to be one of our family touchstone movies. When in the middle of winter at home, the fire on, bare naked limbs on the trees outside, the girls and I would sit and watch this film for a dreamy oasis of green and late summer in Provence. It started about 15 years ago. They didn't exactly watch it at first. I just re-watched it so many times it became a ruse. They got into it. Whenever they see Russell Crowe now, they call him Max. His name, Maximilian, in the film. It's a light-hearted, funny, romantic comedy with a fine amount of armchair travel to keep you sated and some wonderful characters to charm your heart. And sometimes on those cold winter days, the endless sunshine and the beauty of the Chateau La Conorgue, its real name, not fictional, is a natural beauty for the French charm. The film is set in the department of the Vaucluse in the village of Bonneu, which I am really struggling to pronounce properly. Anyway, and Gord and Cucuron. The film itself is based on the book The Good Year by the late Peter Mayle, who famously put the area on the proverbial map with his book A Year in Provence. The director Ridley Scott and Peter Mayle both lived in the area years ago. So I guess we should talk about that too. About 30 years ago, Mayle and his wife moved to the Luberon, leaving his career behind to write a book of fiction and restore a 200-year-old Provencal farmhouse. Yet it turned out that the events unfolding around him soon became better than fiction. Having a cracking dry wit and a writer's hand, he noted some of the observations in an email to his publisher while offsetting the small happenings to explain his lack of chapters of the much-anticipated novella. The publisher was interested in more stories of truffles and goat farmers, and yes, the rest is history. Back in the day, this kind of travel move house narrative belonged to the genre of books called the fruit bowl books, separate to the worldly and high-end travel writers like Freya Stark, Patrick Leifermer, or Paul Theroux. Back in the day when Mao took up residence in Provence, it was then with a modest print run of around 3,000 copies, a slow start, and not much in the expectation department from the publisher. But things began to pick up from there to eventually become a bestseller as the years would follow. More fruit bowl books would happen under the Tuscan sun and driving over lemons, the genre expanded quickly. You know where I'm headed. There have been a number of books, narratives on the roller coaster ride of starting a new life in a new culture, the risk, the naivety, the transformation of house, and therefore self. It would be remiss of me to not say that I too have been under the spell of these books. Of course, I am a woman who has dreamed of houses my whole life. So yes, it was the film The Good Year, I admit. But there are other writers and gardeners over the years I have taken notice of. Recently, I have been slowly reading the book The Luberon Garden by Alex Dingwell Main. He mentions that when he moved to the Luberon, in the village of Minerbe, not too far from where we are staying in Bonu, he soon discovered there are two types of expats that move to the surrounding area. 
PM, post-mail, or AM, after-mail. Most AM deny they know anything about the book A Year in Provence. For Dingwall, Maine, it was a secret garden that lured him into this wild region made of stone, earth, woodland and cliffs that enticed the author and garden designer. I was also intrigued with the late French designer Nicole de Vessian, her life and garden. Imagine retiring from work as a fabric specialist after working for big fashion houses, Hermes, Christian Lacroix, and dividing her time between Paris, New York, and Italy, where in Lake Como, Vessian dallied with the silk producers of Lake Como, to then, at the age of 70, move to the ancient stony village of Bennu and begin work on a garden called La Louvre. When British garden writer Monty Don visited La Louvre in the heat of a summer's day for his documentary garden series of French artists, he met the new owner, art collector Judith Pillsbury. Pillsbury bought the garden and home in 1996, the year of Vassian's death, when she discovered off her friend, food writer Patricia Wells, the garden was for sale. She jumped at the opportunity to be the curator of the estate and garden. The important thing was to maintain Vessian's artistic vision and improve on it where necessary. In the book on Nicole de Vessian, Modern Design in Provence, the first chapter of the book about her is titled A Woman of Many Parts. Intrigued by a person who can live so many chapters and versions of a creative life, I read on to discover that the art of her creation was to enhance the natural landscape with native elements to the area that thrive in the Mediterranean climate. I am intrigued and have always been attracted to this kind of garden she has created, sculptural, layered with a grey-green colour palette, playful textural elements and a paired-back beauty, clipped box hedges, lavender balls and cypress silhouetting in the view. I didn't get to visit the garden at the time, although I do understand that you can visit for a guided tour. I guess I'm attracted to understand this kind of gardening, my own garden at the moment, full of spring splendour, a ripe prone cottage garden full of Flanders poppies, roses, nigella, foxgloves, a wild orchard and elements of cypress, olive trees and deciduous trees for the long haul. Only recently have I been filling old stone pots with more formal tapered boxes and pillared balls of box. Yes, to French and Italian notes. I am a novice and have made a zillion mistakes over the last about 20 years, let's say. So I look to these visionaries in wonder and awe. I just wish I could concentrate on one thing and get it right. But alas, I do not seem to work the way they do and have my finger in one too many pies, to say the least. And then, of course, there is Matisse, who late in his life, suffering from bouts of ill health, was commissioned to design the stained glass windows in a small Dominican chapel, La Chapelle du Rosaire, not far from the seaside of the French Riviera, in a place called Vence. I had always imagined I would visit one day, so certainly this was on my mind too. So we set off navigating our way along the A8, heading in the direction of the Cagnes-sur-Mer, where it starts to get interesting as the lure of the countryside, and then the buses heading from Nice to Barcelona 
drive past. Gosh, how I love a travel adventure. On the outskirts of Saint-Port-de-Vence, we can see the medieval village in the distance. I read that it is a popular destination for tourists a while before. Yet, this being the low season and a Sunday, we are likely to not run into too many problems. The attraction of Saint-Port-de-Vence is vast. There is artistic providence in these hills. Artists like Marc Chagall lived and worked in the area. In fact, the cemetery in the town houses his remains. There is a well-known restaurant in the medieval village, La Combo de Or, that houses the likes of Modigliani, Picasso and Dufay. Paintings acquired last century as artists exchanged food for art, and slowly the collection became legendary. I read in the book Provence and the Côte d'Azur that it is a wonderful place to sit at the restaurant, particularly outside for the views. But then you would miss the art. I know I would definitely love a little seat in the corner, inside, with a glass of something red from the Bordeaux, and time to sit and just look. Perhaps eat something wonderfully hot from the kitchen. Hmm, sounds good to me. When we arrive, we soon realise this hilltop village is best to be navigated without a vehicle, so we end up parking way back down the bottom of the village and the hill, and then take our lunch in a bag over our shoulders and walk up along Chemin de la Fontette into the hilltop village. The girls are thrilled at the walk up the hill and the wander past all of the homes and gardens, and Richard and I cannot stop ourselves from talking about the scenery over the edge as we slowly make our way up into the main square. Entering the village, it is quiet and moody. The day is now grey and a little overcast. We wander past a large stone wall and men playing patonk in the Place des Joux des Balls. This is pretty much the entrance to the village. The heavy silver balls are all piled up on an ancient stone table. Behind the area is bordered by century-old plane trees and a cafe terrace. We don't have a map, so we just follow our noses, wandering into the Porte de Tours, the gateway of the village, to discover ancient pathways, steps up into galleries, small alleys, historic buildings, boutiques and restaurants. We follow the ramparts to discover historic fortifications and intriguing 14th-century medieval walls and towers making our way slowly strolling through the village until we stop to admire the Place de la Grande Fontaine, where behind there is an ancient vaulted washhouse in stone, a cool respite on a summer's day. Although for us it is late winter and we are comfortable on this 19 degree day. I adore the medieval stonewalk and the detail of the taps on the old sinks. The fountain dates back to 1850 and stands in the former market square in the heart of the village. We make our way past shop fronts with terracotta pots and weaving vines along the stone walls, on past homes, and we wander into Chapelle de Penance and admire the historic church with the art of St Catherine on the wall. The girls light a candle, and then we wander back into the quiet streets to sample the views into the hillside. On the Rue de Grande, we find an old bench and enjoy our baguettes with poulet and du fromage. It is a perfect lunch and a perfect view out into the countryside. 
In the distance, the Mediterranean Sea glistens. The hillside is covered in olive and cypress, and homes dotted all over the landscape. Wandering back into the village via Rougrand, we happen upon boutiques and shops selling tempting things. We find ourselves in La Cure Gourmande, sampling chocolate and tucking more into our bags for later. Wandering out into the town, we stop for the classic gelato at a small shop selling a happy selection of flavours. Most of us opt for stracciatella, that divine combination of creamy vanilla with slivers of chocolate. Of course, Richard doesn't get one, but eats my Belgian chocolate. Yes, I am a purist when it comes to chocolate. Livy would later write in her travel journal. And I had stracciatella, which is cream with ice cream, I guess so you could say ice creamy cream cream, but it also has dark chocolate flakes. So I call it ice dark creamy cream cream. (laughs) That is funny. How cute. A 10-year-old in a journal is a wise thing. Back on the road, it is clearly obvious that I am not going to see Matisse's chapel in Vons because it is further away in another town. It did take me a little while to work out that Vons is different to St. Paul de Vons. Heartbroken, I understand why. We still have a two-hour trip to our next day in the Luberon. On the La Provençale, we stay focused on getting to Bonneu. On we go through the classic vista of roads lined with ancient plane trees, bare and beautiful against the azure sky. It is nice that the sun has peaked out again. When I see the sign to apt and rows of thin, elegant cypress and dirt farm paddocks behind them, I am elated to be in France. Although classic me, I am starting to wonder that it is a Sunday and getting late and how exactly we are going to find a meal this evening. I already sense it will be a task, having no idea what is on offer in the village or beyond for that matter. Oh, travel, always the next thing to figure out. In Lourmarin, we see the sign to Bonneu. It is late afternoon. We still have a generous drive around a looming and mountainous road. We are amazed at the hairpin bends to navigate before entering the stony village. The roads are a little hair-raising. On entering the village, I see spring blossom trees, frothy white flowers and the classic Forsythia in abundance, the Easter tree. The yellow stars are all in flower. I will remember this. In the village it is quiet, yet we have no idea how to get to the 18th century stone house we are staying in. In fact, we are too high at this stage and need to head back down out of the town. We call the owner and meet him at the church. Relieved to meet the owner, we follow him in his black vehicle out of the stony streets and into rural bliss. When we arrive at La Petite Maison, we are full of glee. The French ideal, in my humble opinion. A two-storey stone house, mid-blue shutters, classic French scene, stonework, a rural nook, not too much land, some apricot trees in blossom, one lone cypress, a large empty pool, a massive plane tree or two out the front, a substantial amount of grass, and the most stunning view of Lacoste behind the house, and Bonneu just up beyond the farmland. Entering the house, it is perfect for us. 
large spacious rooms with classic French touches, coteau floor, warm white walls, iron curtain rods, flax-coloured linen curtains, exposed beams. In the girls' room, two large beds with Olivier Desforges bed linen in classic blue and white, brown towels and small windows with wooden shutters, like niches in the walls, just enough to honour the view out into the farmland beyond the house. Our room is similar yet with a wonderful stone wall, the original behind the bedhead, and grey and white Oliver Desforges duvet cover, and a large window covered in a white linen curtain, a small wooden desk and adjoining bathroom, an ensuite. We dump all of our things in the house, admiring the red tile in the kitchen, and then wander the grounds. Fortunate for the owner, there is not a massive garden. Richard cannot help himself and wanders about looking at door frames, hinges and shutters, the large garage full of pots and a tractor. It is an elegant property, and I imagine it would set you back a good dollar to stay in the summer, which I silently promise myself I will do one day. We wander the gravel pathway admiring the views and watching the light fall away. It's that dream time of the day, yet it reminds me that we have no idea of how we are going to go about the next meal, and perhaps some milk would be useful for breakfast and coffee in the morning. The rest is all under control now. We jump back in the car and head to Apt, the nearest large town and about 15 kilometres to drive, on past farmland and rows of tilled soil. The houses are beautiful and evocative of a different life. Arriving in Apt, it is the most stunning sunset we have ever seen, that lights up the architectural marvels of this large village, a market town, and known for its good food. I read that it is classified Site Remarkable de Gout, a place of wonderful tastes. It is nearly 7pm and the dazzling pink and orange light that shines on all of the facades of the homes and shop fronts, lighting them all up pink and tangerine, they glow. I see only one shop open, and it is a halal supermarket. Perhaps not dinner, but a bottle of milk for breakfast. So that's a good start. And then we stop near the River Cavillon, where, fortunately, a small van is parked, and two people are happily making pizza in the back. Oh my, the perfect van of food. I jump out of the car with Maddie to work out what the sign says. After all of these years of reading books of expats living in France, fortunately, a few words I can translate. I get Maddie to help with the French, as hers is better than mine, having studied for four years in high school. The woman is serving and a man is creating the pizza. I don't get beyond Savar, and neither does the woman in the van, as she is all French and I am all English. Classic. We order a selection of pizzas and then wander up to the small bridge. The sky still full of electric colour and light. The sign suggests to cross the bridge you are on your way to Avion and Cavillon. Back in the car, we are relieved. The radio is playing Fade to Grey. 
by the 80s British new wave band Visage. The striking sound of the song with the sirens and the beats and the French lyrics sets the tone for the evening. We turn the music up loud, like we are all in our own music video now, driving through apt. We marvel at the fading light and the picturesque French homes. There's nothing but us and a great soundtrack. And of course, the promise of another day in the countryside, in the Luberon. Thank you. 